everyone remain calm. Back for more, huh? Well, yeah. Ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming. Somebody talk to me! What is happening? Welcome to Jurassic World. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Jurassic Park Podcast. <laughs> How long is it going to take for that to spread around the globe? This was all John Hammond's dream. <laughs> Hold on to your butt. <laughs> Seriously? Well, we're back. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 241st episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss... All things Jurassic Park. In today's episode, we're going to head into the newsroom to hear about Jurassic World, Dominion's troubles or not, who really knows? We're also going to discuss some potential filming on the movie as well. After that, we hear from Tom Fishenden with another installment of the Innovation Center. In today's segment, Tom is joined by Jurassic Park's visual effects art director, Ty Rubin Ellingson. We get to learn about Mr. Ellingson's history, working at ILM, and his work on Jurassic Park. Of course, we're going to talk about that. But it was a wonderful interview. Thank you so much, Tom, for this one. And also a fantastic opportunity to learn about Ty Rubin and his incredible work. If you look at his IMDb, if you know anything about him, he has worked on some of my favorite films over the years. Obviously, Jurassic Park, but Casper, I love that movie. The Flintstones, just watched it again the other day. And Signs, that one is one of my all-time favorites as well. And of course, so, so many other films as well. So stick around after the news for that one. You won't want to miss it. But of course, before we move on, I'd like to take care of some quick business. So over the weekend, we were finally able to reveal the winners for our Jurassic Gives Back donation drive giveaway um so we picked four winners for the prize packs and of course one for a guest spot on the jurassic wire this segment with myself and aaron Bayer. so i guess i'll just go ahead and announce them you can actually check out the video reveals over on our twitter at jurassic park pod just look for the uh, announcement and then all of the different videos there so anyway prize pack number one that winner is juan gabriel tan Prize pack number two is uh, Naive Wolf Joshua Studios. Prize pack number three, that winner is Eric Potter. Prize pack number four goes to Alvin Sotillo. We did reveal which prize pack was which in a video that we did recently, so I will share that as well, just in case you were looking for which one is which. If you uh, heard your name there, give us a call uh, or just uh, shoot us an email, hit us up on our website, whatever the case is, and we'll get into contact about shipping out your prizes. As far as the Jurassic Wire guest spot, well, that one goes to Jeremiah DePape. Now, I apologize if I did not pronounce any of your names right. Uh, Jeremiah, please get into contact with us about the Jurassic Wire guest spot. We uh, appreciate each and every person that donated, that took some time to uh, give back from the Jurassic Park fan community. It's such an amazing community, and I appreciate each and every person that donated and congratulations to each and every person that won. Sorry that to those who did not win, but again, I appreciate each and every donation, so thank you so, so much. 
Now, just wanted to shout out to some of our videos over on YouTube from the past week. We actually did a toy hunt. I actually was able to finally track down some Camp Cretaceous toys out at Target. So go check out that video. You can see what there is uh, available on the shelves right now. We also did a live stream over on YouTube with Tom Fishenden as well. That was a kind of spur of the moment uh, live stream where we talked about Jurassic World, Dominion resuming filming. We talked about, uh, you know, trying to be discreet about spoilers for the film. If people are sharing stuff, we don't really want to be involved in that. Also, we talked about Universal Beijing. We talked about Mattel toys and so much more. So go check out that live stream. You can check it out at any time over on our YouTube channel. And finally, last week, we also did have another Dino Facts Friday. This week, we are going to be showing off the Nedry and Dilophosaurus Amber Collection figures. Finally got them here at home, and they are just so awesome. So I put together uh, a little reel showcasing all the different features and everything. Uh, a little bit different than our standard reviews, but please go check that one out. That is debuting this Monday, so please check that out. Also, Friday, you'll see another Dino Facts Friday, so stay tuned for that and much more over on our YouTube channel this week. But I think that about covers it for this intro. I'm going to stop talking. Why don't we go ahead and get this episode kicked off with a bit of Jurassic news from around the world. Eighteen minutes and your company catches up on ten years of research. Access rate program. Access security. These pictures were taken in hospital in Costa Rica 48 hours ago. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Boy, my head being right all the time. But today, I guarantee it. All right, so first off here in the news, this was a, a pretty big deal uh, over the past week, but the website thesun.co.uk kind of, uh, you know, created an uproar when it comes to Jurassic World Dominion by stating that there's been some concerns as crew members have tested positive for COVID-19 uh, on their return to set, uh, as it states there in the headline. So The Sun was reporting that they had a source that was saying, This was the last thing anyone expected so soon. Everyone was so excited about getting things back up and running on set, but this could totally derail that. There are millions and millions of pounds at stake here. Nobody wants more long delays. So, of course, the news that, uh, you know, crew members tested positive, um, that that's uh, a little concerning, of course. Uh, you know, and then, of course, the discussion about delaying the film yet again uh it, it was a big day it was a big deal over the week but uh jurassic outpost actually reached out to universal in the meantime and universal had this to say any reports indicating that jurassic world dominion has halted production are categorically untrue the production is headed into its fifth day of shooting tomorrow and we're thrilled to be back in front of the camera on this incredible project and even after that colin javaro himself kind of threw uh, himself into the game here and said, Thank you to At The Sun for correcting their inaccurate story about our production. Our hardworking cast and crew appreciate your integrity. So going back to The Sun uh, and their website, they actually did add on a bit here that uh, stated that universal uh, quote there. And also they have an insider that said, There was incorrect information that claimed filming had been stopped but Universal Studios have since made it clear that this wasn't the case. So all in all, uh, you know, the movie has continued. Everything is still on track, it seems. Um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, the quotes and stuff from Universal and backing up the information uh, and trying to deny what happened here, the one thing that they did leave out was the fact that crew members tested positive, uh, which 
it's a little concerning and it's kind of expected, you know, to, to be honest, because uh, we've we've talked about it time and time again, all the different precautions that they have in place over at Pinewood Studios and uh, all the different measures that they're that, that they're, in, you know, enforcing there to keep everybody safe. So at some point or another, somebody's going to test positive. And this this happened very, very soon uh, within the first five days of filming there. So uh, it, it is a bit worrisome. And who knows what the, uh, you know, spread could be in the future. We hope everything goes smoothly, as we've said before. We hope it it goes without a hitch. Everything goes fine. Everybody stays safe. But, you know, this is eye-opening uh, right off the bat. So, of course, we'll keep our ears to the ground and hope for the best. And, of course, we'll let you know if we hear anything else. For the articles from The Sun, Jurassic Outpost, and, of course, Colin Trevorrow's tweet, head to the links in our show notes. <laughs> Lastly, here in the news, just wanted to talk about a posting that went kind of viral-ish in the community uh, over the past weekend. But uh, over on Facebook, Ahmed Cardos uh, posted uh, a bunch of images and uh, a little description here that says... Finally, we are able to announce that our film media production team has produced the second unit for the international blockbuster Jurassic World 3 Dominion. And I was honored to be the DP of the first five minutes you will see of the movie. We have executed the job to perfection and was a major learning curve for everyone involved. Working with Pinewood Studios in the UK and Universal Studios added so much to our expertise and personally working with the international director, Colin Trevorrow, and DOP, John Schwartzman, was an experience we will never forget. Stay tuned to Jurassic World 3, June in 2021. And Ahmed went ahead and posted a bunch of pictures uh, hanging around with Colin Trevorrow and the crew at Pinewood. And of course, uh, actually posted some some pretty intriguing photos from uh, a different location, which uh, does not seem to be Pinewood Studios. And judging by the locations, it actually looks like it could be the Republic of Yemen. So again, basing it off the pictures alone, the type of trees that are there, and uh, some other context clues, it looks like they might be filming in Yemen, uh, or did film in Yemen, and they just needed time uh, to have the confirmation to be able to post these images. Um, And it makes me wonder, and and wonder about the first five minutes of the film. We know about a lot of different locations. We've heard about uh, Malta. Uh, We reported on that a long time ago. Uh, Haven't heard anything yet about that. I don't know. But... But uh, it looks like maybe Yemen is in the in the in the play here. So, what does that mean for the first five minutes of the film? Does it take place in Yemen? Is it just doubling for another place? I don't know. Uh, you know, myself and Aaron Byer talked about the uh, beginning of this film, what it potentially could be. Uh, for a while on the Jurassic Wire, and who knows, maybe it's doubling for what we thought it was, or maybe it's just something completely different. Uh, But if you want to see what those images are, I'm not going to say this is necessarily a spoiler or anything like that. There's literally just a picture of, like, a tree and, like, some rocks. So it's not a spoiler. Um, And, of course, any location can be shot as a different location, So I wouldn't be too worried about that. But I am very, very excited to learn more about this production and see people posting about it and having confirmation to be able to post about it. So that is awesome. If you want to find out more, head to the link in our show notes. Oh, there it is. There it is. If I don't innovate, 
Somebody else will. Due to technical difficulties, all our exhibits are now closed. You are acting like we are engaged in some kind of mad science. And Zara here is going to take great care of you until I'm done working tonight, okay? Bigger. Scarier? Um, cooler, I believe, is the word that you use in your memo. Any incidents? Yeah, six kids in the lost and found. Uh, 28 down with heat stroke. All of this exists because of me. Just like taking a stroll through the woods 65 million years ago. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Innovation Centre here on the Jurassic Park podcast. So today we have got a very special episode for you all. So I am very, very excited to be joined by Ty Ruben Ellingson. Ty Ruben, why don't you say hello to everyone? Hello, it's very (laughs) nice to uh, be joining you today. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. I know, um, obviously, we've been talking about it over email for a while, so really, really excited to get into it. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, like I say, it's a perfect, nice sunny afternoon here in <laughs> yeah. Richmond, Virginia, on the east coast of the United States, so a perfect day to talk some dinosaurs. Yeah, remarkably, it is actually sunny here in the UK today as well, so clearly the weather gods have aligned for us. <laughs> yeah, um, so I guess to kick off, um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and kind of your experience with the film industry, because I feel like there's a lot there to kind of dissect. Yeah, there's there's actually more hours than there are, uh, there's actually more hours of conversation than we could sp- you know put into today (laughs) Um, but I think in a nutshell like the things that I like to share about my particular journey and this maybe stems a little bit from being an educator Um, I I really like to 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 share with my students the idea that they can succeed at whatever goals they set because at the end of the day that's that's my story Um, So I was born and raised in a small town in northern Minnesota, which is right up at the top of the United States, right next to Canada. Um, I lived there and, you know, worked in my father's art studio. My father was a university professor, so I I could draw and paint and make things in his space. And I really had a really happy family life uh, and uh, didn't really think about leaving home until I was in my early 20s. Um, and uh, by that particular juncture, I had a really high level of interest in film, but there wasn't any film program at the school I attended. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to just kind of cobble a career path together. It took me an additional probably seven or eight years and a lot of other stories, but eventually I was able to um, interview uh, at Industrial Light and Magic, which was yeah. would have been in 19... 19- probably 1989 and um, from that interview I was able to get a like uh, an opportunity to to be on come in and try you know like a first shot at at working there and um, so I ended up in the ILM art department and once I arrived there I committed myself to being the most uh, focused and the hardest working person in the company, which is a pretty tall order because it's a pretty yeah. extraordinary team of people. But I think the, um, the, the good fortune was is that I was in my early 30s. I um, had a supportive lifestyle and, uh, you know, and I just really focused in on 
you know, learning about the craft of um, working in the film business, especially at that time in visual effects. And um, so each of those steps has another narrative that goes along with it. But the bottom line is um, I just made it by cold calling people and never, never giving up. And then, you know, that's how I did it. I think that's the thing a lot of people um, say, and especially when I was coming up through college as well, studying media, that nine times out of ten when you go into the film industry, a lot of people will say no. And it's just knowing how to pick yourself back up and then continue knock on the next door until eventually you get in somewhere. Um, So, yeah, no, I think that's cool. Um, So, obviously, you mentioned that you work in the art department on films, and that's something that you still do currently as well. Um, So, I'm quite interested, because I spoke to Andy Nicholson, I think it was a couple of years back at this point, who was the um, set designer on Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So, I always find it interesting to kind of think about how do you, like, start with a concept for something... Where does that concept come from? And then how do you kind of develop upon that over time? What sort of things do you consider? Well, uh, so at the time that Jurassic was being made, I was actually, as as an employee of Industrial Light and Magic, which, which obviously was a facility that had lots of different departments and areas of expertise. Yeah. The art department, um, which at that time, I think there were like maybe nine full-time art directors or maybe seven there were always a couple of extra people that did specialized things in the art department but there was probably six or seven of us that were really um you know focusing in on visual effects art direct and uh, art direction and and of course some of them have, have gone on to be you know very um recognized uh Harley Jessup was one of the VFX art directors who went on to work at Pixar. He's still uh, yeah. at Pixar. John Bell, who actually went down to work at, on Jurassic with Rick Carter as part of the core design team. He was actually at ILM when I arrived. Um, Mark Moore, who did uh, movies, just his credit list is hugely long. And then Doug Chang, who, of course, from the Star Wars universe. Um, so th- there was like you know six of us and what we basically did was we would kind of um uh, build relationships inside the company and we would try to um in a friendly way you know compete for various shows um sometimes you'd be busy working on a show and a new show would come in so there wasn't any chance that you could work on it but oftentimes one or two of us would be you know like between shows and you'd go like oh i really want to work on this and so you'd have to do your own sort of um, engagement, um, you know, to try to, um, you know, say, hey, I'm here, I'm ready to go. Uh, but but the way that it is in visual effects is you have a certain kind of, um, of creative thing that you supply, and then you have more of what I would call a facility piece. So okay. work that has to get done to just help the larger visual effects machine move forward and produce good work on a schedule so in that particular arena it would be doing things like storyboarding um, where you're actually you know producing storyboards that help communicate ideas to the larger team Um, on the other end of the spectrum on the creative end you might be asked to do something you know completely original Uh, on jurassic i would say that the bulk of my work was more about the facilitation of the process because so much of the design work was nature. I mean, we looked at nature for 
all of the cues as far as how the dinosaurs looked. And we had paleontologists and the Tippett guys were involved. And so there was this, you know, kind of shared uh, collective awareness of what what would these dinosaurs look like, how they would behave. And then, of course, at the Winston Studios, they were doing these very, very elaborate, very beautifully um, executed uh, hero models that drove yeah. a lot of the visual effects. So other than, um, you know, doing some uh, kind of conceptual designs for um, scenes, like when the when the Jeep is that after the T-Rex attacks on the road and the Jeep is pushed over the embankment, you know, I worked with Dennis Mirren to try to come up with, with a look of how that how that a Jeep falling would work with the live action components. So yeah, in a cool. weird way, I was conceptualizing or visualizing something that was still in pieces um, with the dinosaurs. You know, I did some of the, some studies of the skin patterns and those kinds of things. Uh, but the, the, the majority of it was actually going to production meetings on a daily basis, yeah. uh, going to the screenings, you know, making, um, you know, adding to the critique of shots and then um, always keeping an eye on the storyboards and making sure that the storyboards were up to date and accurate and, and, and those um, kind of move along through the process as the film yeah. goes from, uh, you know, its entry into the facility till the final shots are going out. I know that's a little cryptic, but um, <laughs> the art department, if you think about it, it was a service kind of a task and then a creative task. And depending yeah. on any show, you kind of go back and forth between those two um, opportunities, depending on the needs. I think it's cool because a lot of people, and I mean, I know I'm especially guilty of it as well, will instantly think, oh, cool, those are the guys who designed the dinosaurs. And you like completely forget that actually there is that whole process that needs to go in before that to establish how things are going to unfold in the film. Um, and I mean, storyboards just in themselves are so important in then allowing the rest of the film to actually happen. So it's really cool to kind of hear a little bit more about that, because I think it's always something that people undervalue when it comes to film production. Um, cool. So obviously, I would love to talk more about Jurassic. Um, but before we dive into that, I kind of did want to ask, um, do you have any other projects that you've worked on that have been particularly memorable? Um, purely because I was looking at your IMDb ahead of this and I recognise quite a few and it was cool to see it. You have worked on one of my favourite films, which is Battle Los Angeles, because I thought that was really well done. So I'm interested as to which ones have been your favourites to work on. You know, it's so funny. I mean, it's it's one of those cosmically ironic moments because I just hung up the phone with Jonathan Liebsman, the director of Battle Los Angeles, what? in order to get ready to speak to you. So yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll be sure to, I'll be speaking with him later today. I'll, I'll definitely, um, uh, to tell him that, that you're a fan of the picture. Um, well, <laughs> yeah. one of the reasons, so when I was at ILM, I was there for five years and, um, my experiences were fantastic and I and I really had a I came at a very um, important moment in time because we were moving from the traditional visual effects pipeline yeah. which was primarily models and miniatures and motion control photography that had created the movies that were so impactful on me when I was young you know the Star Wars films Indiana Jones and so forth um, and we were really starting to do uh, CGI or um, computer graphics. And 
I, I was fortunate enough to, to do actually work on both sides of that fence or bubble. Um, and, and it, it, it the, to me, for me to say, well, it was extraordinary is, um, it's an understatement, but, um, in that time frame, as much as I appreciated those opportunities, I really was trying to become a designer. I wanted to create yeah. work, and I mean, create. I wanted to create original designs in that that would end up on screen and help tell the story that the director was um, interested in. And while I was um, at ILM, I did uh, several shows that gave me more of an opportunity to do that than um, than. Jurassic Park did. Um, one of them was the Flintstones, where I cool. was the live action version. And so I actually did design like Dino's body. I designed Bedrock. I did, um, you know, some of the creatures, some of the kind of dinosaurs that appear as ancillary. I really loved that. And then eventually I did the special edition of Star Wars with George. And then I designed new, new, you know, new robots and the big heavy landers for the Imperial uh, you know, for the uh, stormtroopers. And it just gave me more, I think, um, interest in becoming a full-time designer and not having to do as much to facilitate the visual effects. So yeah. I met Guillermo del Toro um, at, at the, around my fifth year at the company, and he asked me to come work on his movie Mimic. And, and then, of course, that led to me working with him on almost, well, most of his films, the Blade movie, the Hellboy film, Specific Rim. And uh, through that period, I started to meet more directors, meet meet other production personnel. And it was actually, uh, as far as Battle LA goes, it was a, a acquaintance of mine uh, who I had known at ILM, Stefan Deccant, who had worked with Jonathan. And, and he introduced us and said, hey, this That's is cool. a director that you might Wanna, he's doing this cool you know film you should try to connect with them and so we we talked and um and then of course there was avatar and the yeah. i did all the vehicle design and of course i met jim while i was at ilm um i actually worked with him on a television commercial but it was many years i kept in contact with him then eventually um was called in to work on ba um on uh, battle angel uh alita that just came out with robert rodriguez but I was working on it with uh, when Jim was planning to direct it. And then not that long after that, we got started on Avatar. And um, of course, that was about a th almost three years of work I did on that. Yeah. And that was, you know, all the vehicles and the big robot amp suit. And yeah. there were five of us on Avatar who worked on Jurassic. So, yeah, it's a small club. Stephen... Yeah. Um, Stephen Rosenbaum, Joe Terry, Rick Carter, and myself. And then I think there was one other person. But it was kind of weird because inside of Avatar was a weird Jurassic club. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, when I'm asked about, like, my, you know, what's your favorite film? What was your favorite experience? You know, every movie that you're working on, it, it consumes your creativity in such a way and your imagination that in those days that you're working on it, it's like the greatest, you know, it's really, yeah. the, uh, and then when it, when they finish they're they're so different that I don't, tr it's hard for me to even put them in the same basket because like mimic is a, 
is a monster movie, a creature movie. Um, you know, Hellboy is kind of a um, a Beauty and the Beast story, you yeah. know. Um, and then Avatar is like this incredible adventure film. So even though you can say they're kind of like FX heavy, maybe, you know, fantasy, science fiction, narrative films, the, to me, they each one has a, a particular... Um, you know, slot in in the kind of larger um, encyclopedia of of films. So, I don't know. I've I've been really really fortunate, um, but I I would say that because again, I suppose somebody's going to listen to this and go, well, being fortunate only gets you so far. I, I was very <laughs> yeah. actively promoting myself through that whole period, and I was always very quick to make introductions, meet people, share my work. Um, and so it it's always, as much as you have to focus on the, the now, you have to prepare for what's yet to come. Um, yeah. So building your skills, your network, you know, always, involve, always evolving as a thinker, as a creative, as a problem solver, all these things come into play. I know that I know that I was always growing as a designer and um, I know that I was... Um, I, I know that in, it, there, it's not like you ever plateau. You, you have always yeah. got to uh, keep pushing forward. Yeah, definitely. I think I kind of see that a lot with photography. I find I'll look at a photo I took a year ago and kind of see things that I would have done differently. And I feel like that just shows that, you know, you're always progressing and always moving forwards. And I'm glad we got to touch on Avatar a little bit, because obviously, as you can tell, I am one of the younger people here at the podcast. Um, So Avatar was one of the big films for me as I was growing up, and I always loved the design of the RDA vehicles. Um, so it's really cool to hear it. you got to work on a lot of those. Um, so going from very, very futuristic kind of designs back to Jurassic, um, obviously something that is well documented with Jurassic is the fact that there was very much at one point going to be stop motion used for all of the dinosaurs and obviously that was what uh, Tippett Studios in particular were looking at. Um, so what was it kind of like being a part of that kind of, I suppose, um, I'm trying to think of the that kind of like linchpin moment in film where we suddenly went from one style of animation to obviously CGI coming in. Um, and what were some of the challenges that that brought? Because it was all very new, te- like in terms of technology at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, well, it's... It's... I know these stories, like a lot of stories, of course, because I'm asked about Jurassic and I follow, you know, um, things that are written about it. (laughs) There are these, there's a lot of narratives that, you know, have been uh, discussed and and keep coming back up. And, you know, the the kind of shift from stop motion, which was actually going to be uh, use uh, actually Phil was going to be using go motion, which was a, okay. a, a technology that he devised um, and had used on Dragon Slayer, uh, which was uh, the use of servos uh, or very precise um, actuators to move the uh, the stop motion puppet just slightly while the camera was filming it, and that created a, a, a little bit of a motion blur and it made for a more fluid um, kind of animation 
uh, as opposed to just the kind of what we recognize as a more Harryhausen kind of, uh, you yeah. know, each frame is as back, basically each frame that you're shooting is um, perfectly in focus and you're not getting any motion blur that 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 you would normally get from a shutter and film. Um, and uh, so there were going to be techniques like that used. And I know that originally uh, the thought was to possibly use um, uh, computer graphics. It wouldn't even really have been computer graphics in the way we think about it now, but it would basically be using a digital approach to blurring uh, blurring the dinosaurs that would have been captured in stop motion. So to create this kind of motion blur artificially in post-production. Um, but uh, there, there was you know, breakthroughs or advancements being made all the time at that time. Like yeah. um, we just had a, we, I just did a, a Zoom meeting uh, two weeks ago with uh, uh, Steve Williams and Mark DePay um, uh, and Wes Takahashi, who at that time ran the, um, he ran the, what we used to call uh, visual effects animation department. And it really was a handful of people uh, in what was this very tiny computer graphics group um, and spearheaded most definitely by Mark DePay and Steve Williams, who conceived of this very famous uh, walking skeleton test. Um, yeah. And that was literally a dinosaur, a T-Rex uh, skeleton that was walking. And it, it was interesting because the, um, the motion was very fluid, but it also had the attributes of being looking as though it had been shot in, on film. So it had this yeah. this kind of motion blur quality. It looked very smooth and it, and it felt very large because of the camera placement and so forth. And that was the thing that really started to catch the attention of um, the production team in Los Angeles and eventually kind of um, led to the approval of another test that was the skinned version of the T-Rex. And yeah. that... I actually, uh, I could send it to you. I, I've had it online, but that I actually was asked to do a storyboard for that test, which which really represents the first storyboard done on Jurassic Park at ILM. But they were already doing a larger storyboarding effort, effort um, down in Los Angeles. But the things I can remember that I think are of interest was that it... it the, even though there was this moment where it became visible to the decision makers that something profound was underway and that something profound was available to change the approach to uh, creating this movie, everybody knew that it was also very risky. Everybody knew yeah. that there was a lot of unknowns. And I think it took a lot of time for, I mean, when I say a lot of time, I'm only talking weeks, but at the time, it, back in those days, it felt like we were in this kind of period of gestation. Um, yeah. And even then it felt as though there was always these possibilities that you'd have to start cutting corners and making other things work because you were you didn't want to put all your eggs in that one basket because of the yeah. unknowns. Um, but um, it was heady. I mean, I always, 
it's really hard to describe, especially to students in my classroom who, you know, weren't even born then uh, when, when Jurassic was made. I mean, it, it did feel like a renaissance. It, every day when you went into work, you'd see something that you couldn't, even though you worked on it, you, would, you couldn't believe you were seeing it. Um, and and it was also the uh, a moment in time where um, there was a collective, um, I would call it like a, a, a resonance, like like literally a feeling in the air that that these changes were going to change more than this movie. Like they felt yeah. profound. And what I what I loved about it myself was that, like I mentioned earlier about coming in and wanting to be the hardest working person everybody there was in that mindset so in 24 hours of a day there were people in the in the building working on Jurassic Park and we many of us would sleep at the building you know, sleep at ILM um, and there was always new things to see new problems to solve and then there was this mind-boggling results that would come out of it and then you would literally like the old adage, you know, like you'd have to pinch yourself. You'd have to say, yeah. <laughs> and I remember one day when we saw some actual shots that had been output to film. And I think they were the main road sequence with rain effects and everything. Yeah. When we see the wrecks, there was no sound effects yet. So it was just the wrecks like coming out, breaking the fence, walking on the road. And I remember going afterwards to a little coffee room and talking to Desmir. And I said, bah, uh, this movie is going to, blow everyone's mind like literally yeah. no one will be able to understand what happened and it's it's going to be hugely successful and everybody was like yeah but nobody would say like well we'll wait and see everybody was like <laughs> yeah yeah it's really going to do that <laughs> <laughs> now that's good to hear it's nice to hear it there was that kind of feeling with it and i mean obviously when you look at it now um, from the perspective of an outsider looking in it really is one of those industry defining moments that has changed kind of what is possible in film and what can be achieved with visual effects um, so I know that you mentioned that you were involved a lot in obviously the storyboarding and things like that so I was interested was the T-Rex breakout sequence deliberately planned to be done at night time as a part of that technology because I know a lot of people have perhaps suggested that that was done to make it more um, immersive for audiences so was that kind of part of the logic there as that was developing the the main okay so so the Crichton book came out the Michael yeah. Crichton book and if I'm if memory serves me and I, I you know I'm sure this is easy to research and I'm sure many that have studied the film more from like a broader perspective. I, I think that Stephen got some kind of first look. Like I seem to recall that he had gotten the rights to it, like yeah. right away. And so there was this feeling like, oh well, this this movie is is you know going to come. It's happening. And I think there was a lot of concern, if memory is that it felt like a movie that could go over budget really easy. I mean, it yeah. just felt like it. And so I think that Stephen, uh, and I remember there was a lot of concern that the budget couldn't get too huge. Like, it was a nice size budget, but everything was going to be controlled. You know, they were going to try yeah. to try to make it super effectively. And and one of the ways that you can do that, and, and Stephen has, you know, made at this 
by the time this movie started, he'd made lots of movies, right? Um, yeah. One of the best ways you can control a film is to storyboard it. And so they set up a team uh, at Amblin down, down in Los Angeles that right away um, was storyboarding the whole movie. Um, so uh, when they started doing the budgeting for the visual effects and when, the, when those sequences started to get boarded out and approved by Steven, they would start to show up uh, up in uh, Marin County where ILM was and at Tippett Studios. And then those would be like viewed uh, by the production team. And um, I have no recollection of the main road sequence ever being, uh, ever being anything but at night. Um, and then knowing uh, the way Steven approaches storytelling, it, it would make sense that it would be at night. And, it, and, yeah. I, and I think that the, the use of rain, you could say, well, that would maybe help cover up mistakes or maybe it was a way to like soften it. But actually, it's way harder. Like everything yeah. is harder when you're using rain. Like live action is harder. Of course, it really affected the animatronics. Uh, you know, it it had an impact. It's harder on the crew. It's harder. I mean, it's it's just harder. So yeah. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that it would have been a, something that was very consciously done to set a certain <laughs> mood. And um, one of the things that, because you brought up that the rain and that the the dark night uh, with the T-Rex road sequence is that um, they had to write a special shader uh, a, a way to process the 3d geometry and and create um, the effect of of water on the t-rex's skin okay. yeah. and that was an incredible accomplishment by the technical directors the technical team yeah. just to make that work and when it started to work at first it looked kind of more like static like noise but then it started to look more like water and and it started to almost have a sense like it was water rolling off and what's weird is that no one really stops to notice that but that placed the wreck so much more in the scene and yeah it really cemented it as a, a biological um, a biological event that that everything was all the signals coming into your eyes were that you're in a real place this is really how the world operates and this is a real animal and and it's really raining on it and so you all your senses were telling you no 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 this is real my favorite shot in the entire film is actually one that uh, it, there's nothing spectacular about it it's it's when the t-rex lowers its head and walks in front of the jeep and crosses yeah. the headlights and and having grown up in northern minnesota i often would encounter deer and animals at night in the car and there's always this sense that that they're aware that you're there but they don't really know how to process what you are uh, but it doesn't hold their attention very long, and the next thing you know, they're like, they're they're like, oh, this is weird, these light things, and then th then right away they're still looking at you like, I wonder what yeah. that is, and there's a moment with the Rex, and even if you look at that scene, there's a hang tag on the rearview mirror that's translucent, and we even composited the Rex to look like it's passing behind that semi-translucent plastic, and it's so. Um, the animation is subtle it's so real that in my mind it's it's like a perfect shot there's like 
100% your senses are like, I'm done. I don't know where they got the dinosaur, (laughs) but here it is. You know, like, and I think that was most people's reactions was they just were dumbfounded. Their brains were telling them one thing and they had no solution. No, they had no explanation, right? In fact, yeah. when the movie first came out, you were like a baby if you were even born. When the movie first came <laughs> I out, wasn't. everybody believed that the Stan Winston hydraulic Rex was yeah. used for the bulk of that sequence. I mean, most people thought, well, that must be the robot. You know, that must be the robot. You know, and it wasn't until like, like they saw, you know, the Rex walking with down the roadway but even then some people thought that might be the robot because Stan had originally told Stephen he could make a walking T-Rex yeah so <laughs> I think there was a long time before people really even understood no 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 this is a computer and then you got to remember that no one knew what computers really did so it didn't help them yeah you know I think it's a real testament to how immersive it is and obviously like going to that extra level is almost kind of like psychological in a way because you've got to think well what is somebody going to process what are the little details that they're going to be looking for and how can we kind of make sure that they match up to what they're expecting um so obviously you mentioned that that's almost your perfect shot in a way um but i'm interested are there any other moments that you remember working on um where you particularly sat back and kind of thought this is a cool sequence i like what we've done with this well i don't i maybe you've read about it online i think it's a couple places but we 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 were always trying to figure out how the animals would behave you know and and so um there was always this we had a we the whole team was required to go to um like mime classes yeah. So we, we we did these kind of exercises to try to, you know, get into the idea of like thinking like a dinosaur, as weird as that is, because dinosaurs probably, you know, had minimal ability to think. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but we did like experiment around with like, well, maybe this would happen. Maybe that would happen. And there was a test that we shot of Gallimimus um, all trying to run and jump over this log. Yeah. Uh, and we shot it in the back lot of ILM, <clears throat> and uh, I was never very athletic. I uh, I was an artist my whole life, so I spent my whole youth in the basement drawing and didn't play, you know, baseball or basketball or any of those things. So um, I was part of the. I was as the art director. I had to work with the <clears throat> with the uh, stage shop to build these um, big, like tubes that represented the fallen tree and they were they were big gutter tubes like pipes that you put under a street and then we set them up to mimic the imitate the fallen tree and then we had cameras and then everybody ran and jumped over well when it got to my turn to jump over because i'm such a um ineffective athlete i i caught my foot and and fell and broke my arm, which was my drawing arm, oh, and um, and actually didn't get up um, because you know. Well, I actually did get up, but then right away I started getting you know uh, lightheaded and stuff, and had to go yeah. to the emergency room. And then eventually I had to have surgery on my arm and was out of commission for a while. But the Phil saw the footage, Phil Tippett, and then he said, "Well, if Ty fell." Um, one of the Gallimimuses is going to fall. And yeah. from then on, they referred to that Gallimimus as Ty. 
And if you watch the sequence, you can see that all the Gallimimus, after the after they've, you know, had their stampede, they're jumping over this log because the Rex is nearby, and then one of them falls down and, and yeah. gets right up and leaves. So I think that I was always a fan of that particular sequence for the reason that it was shot in daylight, like we talked about. Yeah, it had it had moving camera, which was super hard. Um, it had issues of scale because the Gallimimesis tended to look like ostrich, but then you put them next yeah. to people and they looked really tall. And then they had a lot of them. I mean, there was like a dozen or maybe more in a shot, which is pretty amazing because that would have been in stop motion, a nightmare. Um, and then the scene has this yeah. dramatic leap and then it ends with the Rex coming out and chomping one in, in a real full-on dinosaur chomp fest. So... Uh, yeah. That sequence I like a great deal as well. And it, it means a lot to me because at least I broke my arm on a really killer sequence in Jurassic Park yeah. as opposed to, <laughs> you know, a, a, maybe a commercial I would have worked on for something, you know. Yeah, that galley is going to be your legacy now. Though. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's cool. Um, actually, we've moved on to that because the galley was one dinosaur that I made note of. Because um, obviously there were lots that... Um, kind of the team had obviously got the Stan Winston maquettes and animatronics to use as reference. But as far as I'm aware, at least, there wasn't any of that for the galley and obviously the Parasaurolophus as well. So how did you go about kind of designing those from the ground up when there wasn't any physical reference? There was artwork done. Um, I remember seeing coloured pencil studies of especially the Parasaurolophus, um, the galleys, I I believe there was some concept artwork that had been done at, down in Los Angeles. Um, okay, cool. And we were probably making anything we did, like I did some of the Gala Mimis um, spot patterns. And then I know we had a youth, we had one that was smaller that was like a baby. Um, okay. You know, and so we changed uh, the design to be, we looked at like, little deers and does and you know looked for patterns like what's the parent versus the and you know the 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 babies typically are better camouflage so you know we made we made him look uh, a little more like the environment but um you know everything we did was would be just sent down to steven and and put into the approval pipeline uh so you know uh it, it was always a team effort. Like you always, it's believe it or not, it's so hard to do visual effects work, especially like at that level when it was so much innovation. That as much as you'd like to say, well, I designed the, you know, the Parasaurolophus's, you know, yeah. skin and stuff like that. On those assignments, everybody's like, what do we know? Who? What reference do we have? Like, what's the best? that we can get our hands on like oh there's a sketch we'll take it you know even if it's somebody's you know one hour study like well yeah bring it like send it to us um because it anytime you do have to do things from from scratch um there's a different it's a a different kind of approval process you have to first talk about scale then you have to talk about how does it fit in the shot then you gotta and then you have to do it that artwork and get it approved and everything goes through the production and everything goes to the director so i think memory is is that that there was there was a real broad um 
like table setting of things that had been developed to various levels. Yeah. Um, and I bet there's not one dinosaur mentioned uh, in the book or by Stephen that the Winston studio guys hadn't already, you know, tried to get a yeah. handle on. Cool. Okay. I imagine that makes sense because it's just it's the source material, so it makes sense to kind of start developing it all in case it needs to be used in it and at least start getting a feel for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Aaron, who is one of the members of the podcast who tends to go very in-depth, um, so don't worry if you can't answer this one, he actually asked me to ask um, whether there was a story behind the inclusion of the Parasaurolophus purely because he noted that it's literally in the um, lake sequence and that's the only point it turns up. So he, working in um, VFX himself, I think he does a lot of 3D animation, was kind of asking if it was um, something which had to be in because obviously to model and then rig something for one sequence would have been quite expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, So the... So Stephen had gone to Hawaii um, to scout locations for the shoot. Uh, And they were setting up to, um, they were either just getting started or they were, they had set construction underway. I mean, I, it, a lot of what you remember is the things you were working on and not, not everybody's stuff. And then there was this big um, tropical storm, like it was huge, like a hurricane or, you know, typhoon, whatever goes to Hawaii, I suppose a hurricane. And it literally knocked down all the trees. And so they couldn't shoot in the locations. But but they had taken a lot of photographs of the yeah. environment before the big storm. And so I was, Dennis Murin had me come into his office and he gave me all these photographs and said, as quick as you can, can you do some sketches of this establishing shot of you know the Jurassic Park and we're gonna what the plan was was they were gonna actually take those photos and like try to use them as source material for a big you know uh, composite shot and I don't I don't remember off the top of my head if they were gonna I'm pretty sure it would have probably included matte painting um, but it was probably gonna be a, a, a way to take advantage of things that Stephen had liked when it was still pre-storm, right? Yeah. And then they said, like, you know, there's a lake. Um, Add some, you know, brontosauruses in the water and get some parasaurolophuses, like, like at the water's edge drinking because every reference in the movie was, was, um, was naturalistic. So any kind of documentary about Africa or a documentary about a wild environment, they always have footage of watering holes because that's where animals go. And so the idea was like, well, there'll be a big, you know, bum bum, there's Jurassic Park and there's a bunch of animals in there by this lake and there's birds and so on. So I remember looking up the Parasaurolophus just to have a picture in my mind about drawing it. And then I did like, I, I swear to like in just an afternoon I did maybe five or six studies that were very small like three by four inches and then yeah. they were copied and blown up slightly so they were a little bigger and they didn't have any color they were black and white but they got sent down then and those became they were approved and then those became the source and I don't recall after that 
ever seeing the Parasaurolophus again or ever seeing it in a 3D form. It could have been built in a 3D form, but it would have been done in a very, the rigging would have been very simplistic or it was even maybe a cutout. I mean, it could have just been a shape cutout because I don't remember them ever being in a storyboard, although they may have been. But, uh, I, I, you know, and I've seen the other movies, so like I kind of, some of it gets a little blurry, but I, I think that if they built it, it was probably never tricked out like the hero ones. Yeah, and, and and I honestly believe it could have been done with like some just a cutout, like a two D cutout, like cutout in CG, but you know something that was just moving on a single axis or something. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense actually, because when you look at it, it's kind of just doing that drinking motion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I could picture that. Yeah, cool. Um, so I know that obviously before you actually got into your work with ILM, um, a lot of your background was kind of to do with architectural model building as well, and I found that quite interesting. Um, so I was interested. Obviously, you posted the photo the other day with the model of the Ford Explorer and the T Rex, which I think everybody in the community was very jealous of. Um, but I'm interested, did you get to apply any of those practical model skills in your role in the film as well? Um, the, the, the short answer would be not specifically, no. Yeah. But one of the things that, and I would, I would say any of your listeners that, that are interested in working in gaming or in visual effects, anything where you're trying to imitate reality or you're trying to build new worlds, new realities, um, is to um, actually learn how to read plans and yeah. get, get, a, um, get enough experience so that when you, somebody says, well, it's like 10 by 10 feet, that you can pull up a pretty accurate measurement in your mind. Um, oftentimes, I think, uh, young designers will they'll they'll become so fascinated with the imagination and the way that anything can happen in the imaginary world that that they don't necessarily develop an appreciation for um, physics for real physics yeah. and how things really work and my period of working as an architectural model builder and then working with architects and and learning to read plans is that it, it did really provide for me um, a heightened understanding of the difficulties of just stacking stuff of that scale on the earth, you know, like, cause buildings yeah. are like, they have to hold up uh, against gravity and against wind and storms. And so kind of getting, even though I didn't study it, getting a, a getting an understanding of, of those realities um, is super helpful when you come to, tr- to try to make something from your pure imagination because the laws of physics, unless it's set on a, a planet that has no gravity or a space, um, those things come into play and you can, give, you can give credibility and believability to your designs if they seem to have been based on those fundamental foundational realities that come along with the 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 way that we actually construct things in the future you know those rules may change because we may have new ways of um creating large-scale objects but up until today you know there is a certain kind of cadence of shape and you know uh what i refer to often as shape language um and those things 
um, you learn if you're focusing on learning them as opposed to just faking them all the time. If you're faking something all the time, um, you, you really don't have appreciation for you know, its importance or how it actually, the audience reads. I would say the same in a similar vein is um, study um, when you're, if you're interested in robots or spaceships, you know, uh, study manufacturing, study um, uh, complex systems, mechanical systems, because again, if you understand those systems that you can employ the language into your, um, your imaginary creations, um, you know, it starts to look more real. People often ask me because of the work on Avatar, you know, uh, did you go to, did you study industrial design? Um, but no, I'm just very curious about how machines work, you yeah. know, <laughs> and, and studying machines can tell you a lot about, um, uh, you know, makes you go, huh, I, I know that turns, how does that turn? And then you, you know, pick up a better understanding of that. And then the next time you're designing something, you can make it look uh, more authentic. Yeah, I think that's cool. And just using the Avatar example, it really shows through in the um, amp suits, especially because I can remember all of the pistons and things that were in the arms. And I still beat myself up to this day that as a kid, I never got any of the toys from the film. So yeah, Yeah. that's something I'd like to get one day. Um, Cool. So I am interested, obviously, Jurassic Park... Um, it came out some time ago now and there's been quite a few sequels since so have you been keeping track of all the sequels and what do you think of the effects that they're using in kind of the modern uh, Jurassic World interpretations I do see the films I I, I don't know that I have always gone to the theatre to see them and yeah. oftentimes, especially when I was working in film production more I, I would go a whole year without you know going to the theatre just because it takes a lot of time, but I think I think what I like about it is that they've almost created a new genre of of movies. You know, yeah. like when I was a kid, you know, there were you know cowboy movies or westerns. There were you know monster movies, and there were like um, you know uh, musicals or dance, you know, musical dance films, and what you find is there's something about those they become genres but i would almost call them like subgenres uh that they have a lot of room for creative storytelling to take place and the way i view it is it's it's always fine to have a favorite movie of a certain genre um yeah. you know like for me i can say hands down my favorite science fiction movie is 2001 the space odyssey that doesn't mean i don't like aliens i love aliens you know it doesn't mean i don't like star wars but it does mean that it's okay for me as a consumer to say you know i really um i really love this particular film um and for me it exemplifies what i look for in that particular genre um so that's fine but i don't feel compelled then either to compare um my favorite films to one another you know i don't i don't need to say well you know ridley scott's alien was superior to all other monster movies set in space and here's why you know i can like the predator i can like you know guardians of the galaxy i can like i can like them and i don't feel compelled to compare them to maybe my favorites you know and I guess that's yeah. a long way of saying that 
I think that there's some other films in the franchise that I like better than others. Um, I think sometimes what what I believe about the original Jurassic and probably why it holds up and and why it it's kind of an American classic now that everyone sees is because of the naturalistic aspect. I mean, yeah. when when Stephen was getting going and when we would talk about what the film was going to be like and, and I did a lot of work with <clears throat> Dennis Muren and, and helped him you know, I was part of a small group that we we would get together and screen things and talk about things, is we looked at um, lots of um, films and footage of uh, expeditions into Africa that yeah. when no one really knew where the animals were. I mean, it was like the Hatari, these different things. And what Stephen was saying, at least what I was hearing from Dennis was, that what Jurassic Park was in in his mind was a travel film. It, you're traveling into an uncharted territory to encounter wildlife that lives there that's real. It's it's not about on one level it's not like holy you know, holy crap, there's a dinosaur. It's more about um there's dinosaurs here, so be careful. You know, yeah. like it's a pre-given that there's a dinosaur. And I think that the, except for the rotunda scene, which I've always had of, of all of the original film, um, even though there's some spectacular shots in there, I think that some of the logic of the picture that is pretty well established starts to, uh, you know, it gets a little crazy for me. Like why, why yeah. all the dinosaurs are in there and it's waxed floors and you know, the dinosaurs are yeah. slitting around <laughs> and stuff. But um, but by then you're ready to you know it's the it's the send off right it's like Jurassic Park the you know the banner falls Yahoo we're yeah. ready to go so <laughs> you, you're already in the moment you know your your sense of um, you're on the ride you don't care you know at that point um, yeah uh, so but it doesn't I think by and large when you see the T Rex in the main road sequence what you're really experiencing is um, the encounter with nature you're you're yeah, you're uh, you're an animal yourself you're caught in the presence of a huge predator and the kids in the jeep they're like a snack and yeah. to, they, and that's what's so interesting is that the the rex is a monster but the rex is also eating snacks and you 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 know that it wants those snacks badly and yeah. so it's even not even such a mean i mean it's it's um glorious in its in its prowess and its its ability to be a predator i mean you, there's an awe that you have when you see the big mouth and the eyes and it it's a dragon in some way in you know in a sense that it, that's the kind of that's the range that's the kind of um you know archetype that it is yeah. But it's also wanting to eat the tasty children. I want the snacks in the car, you know? And so you can't really be that mad at it. You can be scared of it, but but you, it's not thinking a lot, you know? It's like, it's it's sort of like um, dealing with nature on its own terms. Uh, yeah. And I think some of the later films become much more um, about spectacle. And like yeah. the end in the rotunda does, it gets more about spectacle. And and that's fine, but I think for me, um, once it gets really focused on spectacle, then the emotional piece can only be a manufactured thing. You know, yeah. it's like 
the dinosaurs become antagonists and the, and the characters become protagonists and they're not tasty treats anymore for the animal that wants to eat them. It's more like they're outwitting the animal that's trying to do the, you know, cleverly, you know, um, fool them or, you know, or, or do something more complex. And yeah. I think that then, then you, I always think like, well, would it do that? You know, like whereas in Jurassic, <laughs> I go, it would eat those tasty kids. But in the some of the other films, I'm like, well, I don't know if it would really care that much to go in there and do that or, <laughs> yeah. you know, get inside and do those things. It would probably just run away to the other side of the island and be fine, you know. Yeah. Um, but again, like, I don't feel compelled to rank them or, you know, do anything. I do have people, though, and this would be your listeners could know better, that that come to me all the time and say, you know, the, the T-Rex in the main road or the, in Jurassic one is still the best dinosaur ever made. Like yeah. they just say it's the best. And I find that curious. So the only thing I can think of is it, it gets back to the, what we just, what I was just describing. It, it feels real that for, for whatever, yeah. whether it's the tasty kids, the rain, you know, the things we've talked about, it's like, that's as close to encountering a dinosaur as you're going to get in this lifetime. And it resonates with you. And everything else feels more like a vaudeville show, you know, like a theme park ride, you know, like, you know, you're going into the scary corridor and it's like, Oh, where's the thing going to jump out? There it is. You know, ah! yeah. <laughs> whereas in the, in Jurassic, there's some, it hits a note that people just are captivated by. And, and, and I wonder if it's true because certainly the CGI and the work that's being done in these later films is spectacular. So I can't believe it's technically true, but yeah, it could yeah. be like the sum of all parts, you know? It's yeah. very hard to tease that stuff apart. When, when the Mona Lisa, you know, you look at it and you go, I don't know, it's just a woman. You know, it's just somebody painted on a board, you know, it's just like a painting. But it captivates you and then that becomes what it is and you can't escape it. Yeah. I think it's interesting because there's so many different layers to the original. I mean, I did a watch party about a month back and while I was watching it, I kind of had this epiphany where I was like, you can literally watch this film through the eyes of John Hammond and it's like watching somebody have a dream that they don't want to accept isn't realistic so they're just constantly trying to achieve it until it eventually all falls apart. So there's like so many different tiers and I think that's part of the magic of the first film is the fact that you can still be so deeply immersed by it even today and still find new takeaways from yeah. it as well um, so I guess when people obviously look at a portfolio like yours and obviously we've spoke about Jurassic Park Avatar, Battle Los Angeles it's all a lot of really really big wonderful projects um, so if there's somebody who's looking at that and is thinking, well, where do I get started? Um, this is where you can put, obviously, your university hat on. Um, what would be, like, the key piece of advice that you would give somebody? Well, I I have, like, uh, you know, like a, a small batch that I always point students to. Is One of the simplest things that you can do that I think people forget and it really proved to be super, super helpful for me is become an expert at what you love and look yeah. at the things you want to accomplish and think of them as like research assignments. I can't tell you how many young artists and designers approach me and say, can you look at my portfolio? And I really want to work 
you know, uh, as a character designer for a game company. And I'll say, awesome. And I'll say, um, you know, like, uh, what's your favorite game company? And in some cases, they'll say, well, I like lots of games. And I'll go, I know, but you want to work as a game designer in a game company that makes games. Like, who's your favorite game design company? And they go, oh, I, I really don't know, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that always is a sign to me that they're they're they've yet to uh, fully embrace uh, the creation of those future opportunities. They're still living in this kind of like, um, I feel hungry. I should probably make something to eat. I love pizza, but I don't have any money, and I'm not at a store that sells them. So I'll just say I want pizza, and then you're yeah. saying, oh, okay, but how are you going to get that pizza? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. so. I think it's important to say if you want to work at EA and you want to design Call of Duty um, and that's your bag, that's the thing you want to do, then become expert on, you know, what do they look for in a portfolio at EA? Um, what are the various departments that make up a games company like EA? Um, what's the history of gaming? Um, who are the top designers? Uh, what are their, um, you know, who did they study? Uh, how do they work? And and sometimes young artists and designers will say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to copy anybody. I don't want my own creative voice to be manipulated by, you know, um, you know, other people's, um, you know, work. I want to keep pure. And and actually, it's so unlikely that your particular personal vision will be derailed or mis malformed by knowing more about the craft it just it just it's a that's that's not an accurate thing to worry about you, like you you should just study everybody yeah. i mean never be afraid to learn what others have learned i mean that's the history of humanity is that we all are standing on the shoulders of giants you know so i think i think being an expert at the things you want to accomplish is something you can do with the internet now and to an amazing degree. Think of it as research. You know, like if you want to work in the film business, uh, watch movies. Um, watch, and don't just watch movies you like. That's another thing that's the really, really problematic is if you only consume the things you like, you only end up with a very narrow band. And often yeah. those directors, like especially somebody like Steven, like they learned from everybody. They learned from John Ford and the westerns that he shot. They learned from Hitchcock. They learned from so you don't you don't like build out your understanding of cinema by watching one particular type of film. You build yeah. it out by you know consuming broadly. And you know even if you don't like it, watch it anyway. Like you know if you don't like reading subtitles, then you know try to find a a, a version that's um, you know that's been um, you know, uh, where the voices have been added or whatever. But find a way to look at classic films, study the initial, the history. You don't have, I don't think you have to go back to, you know, like you don't have to see the first, other than to know that it exists, you don't have to see the grain great train robbery. And, you know, you don't have to see like the, you know, the, the Edison films and stuff like that. But there's no reason not to if you can see them. I mean, but I think starting around for sure by the, you know, for sure by the 1930s, you know, kind of have a sense of what was going on and who was doing what. And um, and then the two other pieces that I, I think are really important is um, uh, time on task, 
is what I refer to it as. So if you want to design characters, you know, design like 500 of them and then then start to think about how you feel about it. You know, like don't let your work become overly precious and don't think because, you know, you might have done six or eight cool characters that that's enough to really work effectively as a professional. You know, people that work for Pixar, Disney, Lucasfilm, who do characters like in a day, they can they can do a couple dozen character designs, yeah. you know. So, you know, I think hard work is, you know, time on task, put put effort in and do it on a regular basis and, and know that you're going to have to do uh, a lot, you know, like don't don't think that you're going to just pick it up it's like it's so funny because it's nobody picks up a guitar and plays stairway to heaven you know like yeah you got to practice and you got to put in the time and you have to learn how to play very simple songs and then then build on that repertoire until you can play complex songs and then eventually if you start to be a composer the music in your mind that you're trying to get to your audience will only be technically as advanced as your ability to play it. So it's yeah. a self-editing kind of a way. Like if if you can't play with a lot of um, prowess, if you don't have a lot of technical ability to play, then your ability to communicate original melodies is going to be limited by that ability. And the same thing is true in drawing or 3D modeling or whatever. So looking at your your development is skill-based development, which is on the exterior of your body. Um, I call it skill acquisition. And then interior development, which is your conceptual uh, understandings of how things operate and the kinds of um, emotions that uh, come out of your work. Because at the end of the day, narrative work is typically about emotion. Um, You know, this is an evil character. This is a strong character. This is a delicate character. You know, like, how do you really... Um, inject into your designs a sense of who they are, um, and that comes again with like knowing the, the how to how things telegraph to the audience and um, studying again masters people that have really done it, and then studying nature and studying the world. So be a student of life, be a student of the things you love, and and never give up. Like that's the other thing is, um, yeah. you know, Ron Ron Perlman, the the guy who plays Hellboy in the Del Toro's yeah. one and two, I got to go to the San Diego Comic Con with Del Toro and Ron and Mike Mignola and a couple other people in a van, and ended up driving back at night late. And um, Ron was tired; he was driving. Del Toro was sleeping, uh, and so I was asked to drive. So Ron said he'd stay awake. And, uh, you know, if I drove the last 150 miles or whatever, it was up to wherever we were going. And he said something that really affected me. He said, the greatest thing about Hollywood is that there's, there are no losers. And there's only quitters. Meaning that you don't, ultimately, Hollywood doesn't say, you can't do what you want, you lose. What, they, what happens is you stop trying, you just quit. And then Hollywood moves forward. You know, it's your decision. And and I I always think that when I I deal with students that are, you know, coming in as sophomores in college. So I try to be really, especially when they first arrive in the program, super conscientious of where they're at. And, And some of us, you know, we always need some reinforcement that, you know, the hard work we're putting in is 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 producing good results. 
and so I'm somebody that really says, no, come on, you can do it. This is great. You're doing great. This is great work. Um, but as a, a student starts to get into their senior year and they're getting ready to graduate, then the messaging has to switch slightly. And it really has to be about intention, like your ability to, yes. to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to work at I'm going to work for George Lucas or I'm going to work at EA or I'm going to, you know, create my own properties. And then that becomes your focus. And then you, you, you create a lifestyle and a practice that supports that. And yeah. ultimately it is your decision. I mean, you, you, you will succeed or fail based upon the strategies and the efforts you put into the process. Are there the occasional person that just runs into a streak of bad luck and they're, they're foiled, you know, they're dissuaded or they, or they're stopped in their tracks? Of course. But that's a minority. I think if you look at the big picture, just like on the other end of the spectrum, do people actually get discovered in Hollywood, you know, sitting on a, uh, a stool at an ice cream parlor, you know, like there's the next Faye Dunaway right there. Like, see if that girl, you know, hire them. They're 15, you know, and then they get a, a movie deal and they're big stars. Does that happen? Yeah, but rarely, rarely. Yeah. So, you know, the middle of that bell curve is hard work, attention to detail, strategy, focus, and above all, intention. I will, not cool. I can or I could, I will. I like that. I think that's a really nice note to end on as well. So um, why don't you let people know where they can find you on social media? Yeah, I'm on the tweets uh, at Tyruben, T-Y-R-U-B-E-N. Uh, I'm on Facebook at Tyruben Ellingson, I think. That's what it is. I'm in the middle of redoing my website because I think it hasn't been touched in 11 years. But that is, I don't know what's up there. It's all pre-digital work, I think. Uh, okay. That That is com. The word alien, the word insect, put together in one word, .com, alieninsect.com. And uh, you can connect me via email through my website. So Yeah. Well, Brad, if you're listening, please make sure all of those are linked in the show notes as well. Um, And on that note, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really, really cool. And I'm glad that we got the time to sit down and do it. It's been really great hearing about, obviously, all your experiences on such a pivotal piece of cinema. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, It's been a pleasure. And I I do enjoy an opportunity to talk about the the time I was able to, uh, to put into the Hollywood film industry and the the, yeah. the ma- amazing things that happened along the way. So thank you for inviting me, and uh, I, I appreciate your listeners taking time to hear what I've had to share. Yeah, I'm sure they'll enjoy it, and I'm sure they're never going to look at that Gallimimus the same way again as well. <laughs> cool. Well, that has been another episode of the Innovation Centre here on the Jurassic Park podcast. I hope you've all enjoyed this episode, and stay tuned for more soon. Thank you so, so much for listening to the 241st episode of the Jurassic Park podcast. Thank you uh, to Ty Rubin Ellingson for for joining us here on the podcast and for chatting with Tom. It is so great uh, to hear from you and to learn more about your work and everything you've been involved in in Jurassic Park. 
Uh, you know, you know how iconic this movie is to all of us. We have a podcast with 241 episodes, actually way more than that, but these are just the numbered ones, and we are still going, and we will for many more years. So this is super exciting to learn more about one of all of our favorite films. So we appreciate you taking the time, uh, Mr. Ellingson, for you know joining us here today. It means a ton. Also, a huge thanks to Tom uh, for conducting the interview, setting everything up. Uh, I appreciate you each and every time you are a part of the show, which is all the time. <laughs> uh, I love you, dude. Thank you so much for everything you do and for this great interview. And this week, we're actually going to head over to our Apple Podcast reviews. So if you guys want to go ahead and leave us a five-star review, that would be amazing. You don't have to. You can leave whatever you want, but we would appreciate those five-star reviews. And go ahead and, and leave a written review as well if you want. That would be greatly appreciated. I, I would like that. And that way, I can go ahead and read them here on the show. So again, go to Apple Podcasts, write your reviews, and I'll read them right here. So this one comes from balls0721 and uh, this one says best JP podcast Uh, thank you thank you for that there's also a a big review here it says I may be a newcomer but I've been familiar with Jurassic since 93 I'm glad I can listen to all other episodes I missed out on over the years this podcast is a ton of fun and over the top informative you guys have put in so much work and I can't wait to see what's in store for the future thank you Brad and Jurassic guests uh so thank you so much to balls 0721 uh really really appreciate you writing the review and uh appreciate your love of the the show and the franchise and everything you know it it means a lot uh for you to take just two seconds to write a review um you know it is a lot of work we do put in a ton of work here at the podcast with different uh you know contributors tom uh, myself everybody else involved uh we put in so much work on this end so it's it's great to see you kind of give back with a review that means a ton but uh yeah uh, that's about it for the for the end of this episode thank you so much to everybody for listening take care everybody out there i know we're seeing some spikes in covid19 right now so just be safe be good uh stay home if you have to stay safe if you can and uh we'll be here for you guys next week so thank you so much for listening and i'm gonna go ahead and hand it off to myself for the outro Take it away. Saddle up. Let's get this movable feast underway. Please give us a follow on Twitter, at Jurassic Park Pod, and myself, at Brad Jost. Also on Facebook and Instagram, at Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to join the Jurassic Park Podcast group on Facebook. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, our website, or wherever else podcasts are found. So please be sure to subscribe. Also, don't miss our toy hunts and reviews, in-depth bonus content, live streams, gameplay, events and theme park coverage, and so much more on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will read your reviews at the end of every episode, so please be sure to spare no expense. Don't miss us on the web at JurassicParkPodcast.com, where you'll find today's episode show notes, wonderful articles, bios from our contributors, and so much more. If you want to get a hold of us, you can fill out the contact form on our website or email us, JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. We're always looking for new segments, contributors, mailbag submissions, or anybody who just wants to say hello. Feel free to call our voicemail line at any time to leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. 
Thanks for listening and enjoy. Five minutes. Drop what you're doing and leave now. Okay, team, listen up. We've got a new predator on the loose. Not you, Blue. The predator we're talking about is the coronavirus. And I'm going to help you spot the main symptoms in the wild. First, watch out for a high fever. Second, a dry cough like this. Third, trouble breathing. It might even sound like this. Whoa, whoa, back up, Blue. Don't forget about social distancing. Keep at least six feet away from anyone you don't live with. Good job, Blue. We all have to be extra vigilant if we want to beat this virus, even if we don't have any symptoms. That means always protecting ourselves and each other. Because this virus, it's invisible. It's made up of germs just like these. It could literally be anywhere. It attacks our bodies. Oh, Blue! Hang on, Blue. Drop it. Drop it. It's okay, girl. It's okay. Which brings me to my last point. Always wash your hands thoroughly for at least 20 seconds with soap and warm water. No! Hey, come back here! Remember, we're all in this together. Teamwork is our best defense. Blue, Blue, no! Don't eat the soap! Drop that right now! Oh, I should be burping bubbles for a week! 